0: Hello everyone and welcome to the November 16th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd-Skerin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California workers' compensation COVID-19 monthly claim count may have peaked in July. The latest tally by the CWCI shows that as of November 2nd there have been 50,592 COVID-19 claims reported in California, including 282 death claims. That translates to one out of every nine California job injury claims reported for 2020. The latest figures show that after climbing rapidly over the first seven months of this year, And hitting a record 14,453 claims this July, the number of COVID 19 workers' compensation claims began to dwindle. The updated count shows about 6,700 claims with August injury dates, 3,700 claims in September, and slightly more than 2,000 claims this October. A significant number of claims from September and October could still be reported. But the initial claim counts from both these months were well below the early counts from June and July. Denial rates for COVID-19 claims have stabilized within a narrow range, holding between 287 and 31.3% from April through this August. Denial data on September and October claims is still too new for analysis, as many of those claims remain under investigation. The distribution by industry shows that COVID-19 claims remain heavily concentrated among a small number of industry sectors. More than three-quarters of the claims from the first 10 months of this year involve workers' health care, that's 37.1%, public safety and government, 15%, manufacturing 8.3%, retail 7.9%, transportation 5.1%, and the lowest is in food service with 4.4% of claims. The data on claims reported through October is included in the last update to the CWCI's COVID-19 and non-COVID-19 interactive claim application, which is an online tool that integrates data from CWCI, the DWC, and the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. The California Workers' Compensation Institute updates its data app with new data every two weeks and plans to expand its features as more data on claim type and system-wide cause become available. The application is available to the public for free. And now our crime report. Invidor Solutions was sentenced to pay $289 million in criminal penalties in connection with a previous guilty plea related to the marketing of the opioid addiction treatment drug known as Suboxone. In total, the payments made by Invidor Solutions and its parent companies and criminal penalties paid pursuant to plea agreements with two former key Invidior executives will exceed $2 billion. That amount represents the second-largest monetary resolution obtained by the Department of Justice in a case involving an opioid drug. Suboxone, which contains the powerful opioid buprenorphine, Is a drug product approved for use by recovering opioid addicts to avoid or reduce withdrawal symptoms. In October 2012, Indivior Solutions tried to convince MassHealth to expand Medicaid coverage. MassHealth is Massachusetts, Massachusetts Health. And to expand Medicaid coverage of Suboxone film in the state of Massachusetts and the company sent misleading chart and false data indicating that Suboxone Film had the lowest rate of accidental pediatric exposure of all buprenorphine drugs in Massachusetts, when in fact this was not true. The context of this marketing and promotional effort directed all Massachusetts health were overseen by top executives of the company. And Divior Solutions admitted to making false statements to the Massachusetts Medicaid program about the relative safety of its drug, the version of drug around children. The company pleaded guilty last July to a one-count felony charge for making false statements. And last June, And Devior's former CEO, Sean Thaxter, pleaded guilty to one count misdemeanor charge related to the false and misleading same representations. He was sentenced to a six-month prison term and a $600,000 criminal fine and forfeiture. And last August, the company's former medical director, Tim Baxter, pleaded guilty and his sentencing is set for this December 17. 30-year-old Alexander Cody Smith of Canoga Park was arraigned on three felony counts of workers' compensation insurance fraud. He allegedly misrepresented past injuries to receive over 38000 in undeserved medical treatments and temporary disability benefits from his employer's insurance company. Mr. Smith claimed he injured his back in 2018 as he was lifting a box. He complained of back pain to his treating physician and later added complaints of neck pain to the claim. According to his claim and his doctor's medical reports, Smith denied any previous injuries or complaints about his back. But later, subpoenaed records showed a history of medical complaints related to both his neck and back, which began back in October 2015. Smith received medical treatment from 2017 through March 13, 2018 for the prior injury just three days before the date he claimed he got injured at work while lifting this box. Smith was arrested on October 28 and arraigned two days later. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office is prosecuting this case. And 49-year-old Angela Stubblefield of Tacoma, Washington, was sentenced to two years and six months in prison in order to pay about $220,000 in restitution for a disability benefits fraud and identity theft scheme. Stubblefield and her co-defendant, Catherine Decker, defrauded the state of California by filing fraudulent claims for disability insurance benefits with the Employment Development Department. The two used Decker's position as an employee with the EDD, to file fraudulent claims for disability benefits and to extend existing disability claims using the names and identities of real persons with and without their knowledge. In total, the conspiracy resulted in 15 fraudulent disability claims, resulting in a loss to the EDD of about $373,000. Stubblefield's co-defendant, Catherine Decker, was sentenced to three years and seven months in prison for the same scheme. The case was the result of an investigation by EDD's Investigation Division and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And in regulatory news, a new National Council of Compensation Insurance Medical Provider Network Cost and Outcome Study was not all good news. Medical provider networks for workers' compensation have become increasingly popular over the last two decades. Some MPNs have broadened their services as a way to improve outcomes. They do not just provide medical care. They also manage the medical services on a claim, including actually interacting with the patient. A new report published by NCCI looked at the impact of MPNs on workers' compensation claim costs for 10 common workers' compensation injuries, with claims managed for out-of-network across states. They found that the average paid medical costs are higher in-network for the more costly back and shoulder injuries, but lower for several less costly claims. In-network cases have more and higher level office visits as well as more physical therapy modalities than comparable out-of-network cases. Except for the more costly back injuries, in-network claims are less likely to be admitted to a hospital, cost less for hospital outpatient services, and cost more for physician services. In-network claims are more likely to have permanent injury awards than the out-of-network claims. And work comp medical costs for physician services are higher than comparable group health costs. The main driver of this difference is higher utilization of services to treat the workers' compensation cases. There may be differences at a state level, and they will be considered in a follow-up study performed later. And another new study, this time from the California Workers' Compensation Institute, shows a steep drop in the number of inpatient hospitalizations involving California-injured workers over the past decade. This was largely due to the ongoing decline in spinal fusions and a more recent decline in lower extremity joint surgeries. This study reviews discharge data on 35.9 million inpatient hospital stays from 2010 through 2019 paid by either workers' compensation or other systems. The goal of the study was to identify workers' compensation inpatient trends and to compare the volume and types of California inpatient hospitalizations covered by workers' comp to those covered by the other systems. Workers' comp is by far the smallest of the medical delivery systems reviewed and accounts for just 0.4% of all inpatient stays in 2019. Over the 10-year span of the study, it found that the number of workers' comp inpatient hospitalizations declined 36.2%. That was more than twice the 15.9% decline noted for private coverage and in sharp contrast to the 4% increase in Medicare and the 14.5% increase in Medi-Cal hospitalizations. A key factor leading to the reduction of workers' comp inpatient stays was the sharp decline in the number of injured workers receiving spinal fusions, which fell 53.1% between 2010 and 2019 the spinal fusion decline was spurred by multiple factors including the adoption of a utilization review and independent medical review programs the elimination of duplicative payments for implantable devices used in spinal surgeries and fraud convictions that led to the sale of hospitals such as the Pacific Hospital of Long Beach that had a high volume of workers' comp back surgeries. At the same time, the overall number of work injury claims declined, and there were technological and procedural advances that allowed more services to be provided in outpatient settings. This prompted the growth of ambulatory surgery centers and an expansion of services at those facilities. Spinal fusions were not the only type of work comp inpatient hospitalizations that saw a significant decline, as the number of workers' comp discharges associated with lower extremity joint replacements has gradually declined in each of the past five years. CWCI members and subscribers can access the report in the research section of the CWCI website. According to a new study conducted by the National Safety Council, most employers are investing in providing sanitizing stations, increasing deep cleaning of common areas, and hanging signage to educate workers on COVID-19 prevention and hygiene. Researchers surveyed 334 safety and health decision-makers for organizations with at least 250 employees across the U.S., The goal was to determine what safety practices the companies were implementing, how much they were spending on COVID-19 prevention, and what effect those safety practices were having on productivity, performance, and the spread of the virus. The researchers surveyed employers primarily in manufacturing, construction, retail, and office operations, as well as other industries. The survey discovered that companies spent on average slightly more than $5,000 per employee on safety practices. The practices ranged from making remote work possible to providing personal protective equipment and hand sanitizer. Among the most common safety practices adopted by employers was offering hand sanitizers throughout the facility. 80% of them did that requiring face masks or shields or other personal protective equipment, 75%, and requiring operators to sanitize work surfaces, machines, stations, and tools at the beginning or end of each shift. 72% of employers chose that. More than three-quarters of surveyed employers also increased the frequency of deep cleaning, 71%, added COVID-19 educational signage, 70%, created an employee self-reporting system and positive screening protocols, 69% of them, and implemented remote working for non-essential employees, also 69%. Retailers are the most likely to use temperature screening, 70% of them, and spent the most per employee on COVID-19 prevention. Employers in construction reported the highest number of confirmed COVID-19 cases among workers, followed by retail trade and educational services. And in medical news, first the good news. Pfizer and its collaborator BioNTech just released early study results indicating that their vaccine prevented more than 90% of infections with the virus that causes COVID-19. This conclusion was based on the first interim efficacy analysis conducted on this November 8 by an external independent data monitoring committee from the Phase 3 clinical study. The study enrolled more than 43,000 participants, with 42% having diverse backgrounds, and no serious safety concerns had been observed. The vaccine candidate was found to be more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19 in participants. Submission for emergency use authorization to the Food and Drug Administration is currently expected to occur in the third week of November. The clinical trial will continue in order to collect further data and characterize the vaccine candidate's performance against other study endpoints. Participants will continue to be monitored for long-term protection and safety for an additional two years after their second dose. Pfizer and BioNTech are working to prepare the necessary safety and manufacturing data to submit to the FDA, to demonstrate the safety and quality of the vaccine product produced. Based on current projections, it expects to produce globally up to 50 million vaccine doses in the remainder of 2020, and up to 1.3 billion doses in 2021. But there is now some bad news. There is stunning public mistrust... In COVID vaccines and mistrust could push levels that potential COVID 19 vaccines are taken below the rates needed to protect communities against the disease. A new pre publication study of 8,000 people in the U.S. and Britain found that fewer people would definitely take COVID 19 vaccine. Than the 55% of the population scientists estimated is needed to provide so-called herd immunity. People without a college degree, those in low-income groups, and non-whites were more likely to reject a COVID-19 vaccine, according to the study. Women were more likely than men to refuse a COVID-19 vaccine, but more respondents in both countries said they would accept a vaccine if it meant protecting family, friends, or at-risk groups. In the United States alone, another study by the Pew Research Center found the share of adult Americans who say they would definitely or probably get a COVID-19 vaccine fell from 72% in May to 51% in September, an October Harris poll showed that 78% of Americans think that the speedy approval process of a coronavirus vaccine is driven by politics not by proof that the shots work about 83% said they would worry about a safe how safe a coronavirus vaccine is if it was approved quickly and recent axios ipsos polls confirms that vaccine resistance is growing. In that study, the percentage of people who say they are likely to get the first-generation COVID-19 vaccine as soon as it is available fell from 47% in August to now 39% at the end of September. And in other industry news, travelers announced the launch of Global Companion Plus Plus, This new product builds upon the company's broad property and casualty offerings for U.S. firms with foreign exposures. Features of Global Companion Plus Plus include protection for employees who are working outside of their home countries, a separate $1 million limit for U.S.-based companies as an extra layer of protection when an eligible foreign subsidiary suffers a covered loss, The product also offers help for businesses in need of legal assistance abroad to find in-country representation experienced in local regulations and languages. And offsets to the cost of employees who must evacuate while abroad, which now includes coverage for natural disasters, political unrest, and endemic disease. Even if a business does not have a physical foreign footprint, Traveler says that having international customers worldwide, vendors, or employees who occasionally travel to different countries could create exposures that may not be covered by a typical domestic business insurance policy. Thus, it has updated its Global Companion Plus Plus product to include a more robust offering that fills coverage gaps for customers who could experience claims or lawsuits outside of the United States. Travelers provides global coverage in conjunction with its strategic alliances in the International Network of Insurance, or INI. INI includes major international insurance companies from more than 150 companies. INI partners are independent insurers as well as experienced leaders with their respective markets. Each network partner is approved by the INA Board of Directors and follows the same contractual membership obligations and service guidelines worldwide. INI partners are carefully picked based on a defined criteria such as financial strength, servicing capabilities, and experience, and claims handling expertise. So, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Fols with Thoid Skarin, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.